living in Ephesus, preaching the gospel, teaching the scriptures, and helping lead the church there. Historians maintain that he wrote his gospel and his three epistles from Ephesus and was very outspoken against the pagan worship happening there. This didn't sit well with the Roman Emperor Domitian. Roman historians such as Pliny described Domitian as a violent madman who persecuted Christians. Domitian was also a frequent user of and believer in prophetic omens, and he was one of the few emperors who insisted on calling himself a god during his reign. In about 86 AD, a temple to Domitian was built in Ephesus. At about the same time, the people of Ephesus were forced to worship and make sacrifices to Domitian, practices that would have certainly been denounced by the Apostle John. John's opposition to emperor worship, along with his continued preaching of the gospel, eventually reached the ear of Emperor Domitian, prompting him to take action. In the 14th year of the reign of Domitian, that is 94 AD, the elderly John the Apostle was banished here to the island of Patmos. About halfway up this mountain, in this unassuming place, is the Cave of the Apocalypse. This structure covers a cave where, according to early church tradition, is the place where John spent much of his time here at Patmos in exile. The cave is also where John received a series of special visions which became the book of Revelation, the final book in the New Testament. Now, the mosaic that you can see above the entrance to the Cave of the Apocalypse depicts St. John the Theologian with his disciple Prochorus, who some say transcribed John's visions into writing. Now, the tradition that Prochorus was here helping St. John can be traced back to a text from the 5th century that says Prochorus, who was one of the seven deacons from the original Jerusalem church, was also banished here with John, though no other evidence for that claim exists. Inside is the traditional cave where many believe that John received the visions that comprise the book of Revelation. Now, the cave was reestablished in 1088 when a monk named Christodoulos received special permission by the Byzantine emperor to transform the pilgrimage site into a sacred place for the Orthodox Church. Tradition maintains that these three fissures in the rock represent the Holy Trinity of God. The book of Revelation is considered the last book in the New Testament. It's filled with mysteries and metaphors, many of which are related to future events. Its imagery and the predictions are sometimes rather strange. And scholars are often in disagreement as to what they mean or when they'll take place. Since all of that is a little above my pay grade, I think I'll stick to the basics. Book of Revelation is a series of colorful visions which proclaim the last days before Jesus Christ returns and ushers in a new heaven and new earth. It is a final warning that the world will surely end and there will be a final judgment. It gives us a tiny glimpse of heaven 
and all the glories awaiting Christians. It also takes us through the Great Tribulation with all its woes. Much of the book of Revelation is the culmination of biblical prophecies about end times, beginning with the Hebrew scriptures and continuing through the Gospels. It's what we call apocalyptic literature, with the same kind of end of days language that we often see in Old Testament books, such as Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Zechariah. Currently, the oldest known manuscript of Revelation is called P98, a fragment found in Egypt that dates to about 150 AD. That places this copy of Revelation just over 50 years after John's original composition on Patmos. verse 10 as we get into it today John writes on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet I've been trying to imagine what that voice would be like all week and it said write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches and the first church is the church at ephesus if we have a look at the map here it obviously makes sense that patmos as the messenger went across into the harbor would have landed in ephesus and then there's this circular pattern that we will see the letters taking shape of course we know from our past series that uh, paul spent three years in Ephesus. He planted the church in Acts chapter 19. We know that he wrote a letter to the church in 63 AD, encouraging them to abound in love. And now John writes about 30 years later. John, if you don't know, he's known as the apostle of love. And he writes to inform them that they have lost their first love the glow has gone the love of the lord out in the community has been extinguished we know that john returned from exile around about a hundred a.d and he went back to his hometown of ephesus and he was around about 94 and can you imagine uh, the church inviting john to get up and speak he'd love to have been there then wouldn't you and John simply gave a three-word sermon, love one another. And so this letter is addressed to Ephesus, and today it's forwarded uh, to us from Jesus. And I think it's uh, seven helps, as we look at these throughout the week, seven helps to a healthy church. I've entitled the uh, first message, All Must be my dyslexia coming in there. All you need is love. All we need is love. Anybody old enough to remember the Beatles? Love is all you need. Love is all you need. I just imagined you'd all join me. Love is all you need. 
you know, when the Beatles sang about it, they were actually talking about love as an emotion, weren't they? They were talking about it as a feeling. They were talking about it as something that you fall into and out of. But, you know, when we think about love being all that we need, it's His love is all we need. It's so important that we remember that God is love. It's the definition of his character. We remember that for God so loved the world that he gave us the cross, the cross which is called the tree of life because it's where Jesus hung to give us life and life eternal. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for us all. And it's only when you allow that love to be planted in your heart that you can actually open up to the love that God has for you and loving one another. So to begin, verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Angel simply means a messenger who has come to share with the congregation. Jesus says in verse 1, these are the words of him. That's Jesus who holds the seven stars. The seven stars represent the seven pastors or the seven leaders in the church. Holds them in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches. A lampstand, of course, is a, a, a bowl like, a, like it was filled with oil and it had a, a cloth wick and they would light it. And of course, in these seven letters, there's sort of this pattern where we get this picture of the person that is Jesus. He has praise for the church. He identifies then a problem. I think every church has got at least one problem. If you're it, then you know, you know who you are. Then he gives us a prescription of how to deal with that problem. And then he always finishes with a promise. But one of the great things about it is that here it actually represents that Jesus walks among us. He's not some distant God making decrees up in his throne in heaven. He's actually here with us where two or three are gathered. How did he get in this morning? He gets in through you when you place him on the throne of your hearts. And because he's present, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. And he says, all of that is wonderful. Praise you for it. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And that's the whole point of the passage, isn't it? You know, once a church that was characterized in the community by Christ's love, now suddenly they'd, they'd lost it. You know, it's only the Lord walking amongst us this morning who actually knows who loves him. You know, John wrote in uh, 1 John 4 verse 7 and 8, Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from God. So he calls us friends and we're commanded. It's a command to love one another. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So this is how you know you're in God's family, by the way that you express this love for one another. Love actually validates your faith in Jesus. I had to do one of those uh, digital uh, IDs the other day to validate my identity. 
And likewise, to uh, access heaven, we need to validate our identity as children of God. What does he look at? He looks at our lifestyle, but he also looks at our love style, how we love one another. You see, love's not so much an emotion, but an emulation of the one who first loved us. Actually, in the Greek, it reads, those who are loved, let us love. And F.F. Bruce wrote, the love of God displayed in his people is the strongest apologetic that God has in the world. So think about that. Our love, the way that we demonstrate that love, actually validates that there is a God. You see, when people see us loving one another, caring, being compassionate for one another, forgiving one another, serving and helping and praying for one another, we actually then allow this light of Christ out of us and into the world in order for it to shine into other people's lives. So reading on. Verses uh, 5 through to 7. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I'm going to remove your influence. I'm going to remove the blessing upon the church. The church is going to be a place where it goes through the motions because the Holy Spirit has left the building. The for sale sign will go up. And yet the sad reality, you know, is that if that happens, many a church will continue on like nothing else happened. They won't even be able to identify what's gone on. So reading on. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And it's really important to understand that Jesus doesn't hate any people group. He hates what we do that is so often against him. Then he ends his letter the way that he ends all of them. Verse 7, Whoever has, he has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he gives us this promise. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So let's just bring it down into a little bit more detail this morning. We're going to look at the praise, the problem, and we're going to look at the prescription before we get to God's promise. So firstly, the praise that Jesus has for the church. Three things. Your diligence, your doctrine, and your discipline are the three things that he praises the church for. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. See, perseverance, the church has to persevere for 2,000 years, plus until Jesus Christ comes again. So it's to be a, a, a definitive characteristic of the church. Like any loving relationship, we're commanded to persevere through the problems because of the love that we have for one another. So Jesus says, I praise you for your service. The Greek there is a diakonos. It's uh, uh, two uh, uh, particles of the, of the Greek. Uh, D means through, konos, through the dust. Do you like that? Do you serve through the dust? Have you ever seen somebody working so, so hard and you say, wow, look at the dust fly? That's what it's talking about here. People who are so diligent in their service. 
Augustine wrote this, What does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has the eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. So could Christ commend us for the dust we make? Service, I think, is one of those uh, love languages. And it affirms the value of the relationships that we have with people in the room. Then in verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. In other words, you protect the pulpit. You're very uh, particular about what is taught. Remember last week in Miletus, Paul warned the church in Ephesus that when he leaves, wolves will come in to try to lead people and divide people in the Word of God. You see, they didn't have the Word of God like you do today. That wasn't available to them. Someone could come in and give them a false gospel and and they didn't have a lot to actually verify those things with. You don't know how blessed you are when I can say to you every week, please open up your Bibles too. And every single week you can check out the Word of God and hold me accountable for the words that I speak from this platform. It would hardly be sort of expressed that way in the church today, would it? You know, if a pastor gets up on the platform and says, uh, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Without Christ, you cannot be saved. We'd be called maybe a, a bigot. You know, if we want to get into some sort of uh, sexuality in the world today, uh, the world will pretty quickly, and the church as well, tell us to keep our opinions to ourselves. There's still a lot of false teaching going out into the world today. So Jesus says, I praise you because you test everything and you are not afraid to show those sort of people the door. And then he compliments them for their discipline. Again, discipline, it's uh, a practice very often in the church today, is it? You know, back in the day, there was probably one church in Ephesus and that's where everybody went. And if there was a problem, well, they had to deal with it. Not today. It's a problem in the church today. You just go and find yourself another church. But you see... Church discipline is important because what it does is it rebukes something that's wrong. We repent and we restore relationships. Because for Jesus, it's all about your relationship with one another. It's so important. And then he says, I hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Again, these two words, Latians meaning people and Nico meaning those who chop and divide. People who come in and and try to have this little group and lure those people away. He says, I hate those practices because we're one body. Christ is the head and we're all part of that body. These guys were one of the first Christian sects. Sects. They used to teach freedom in Christ. I'm in the spirit so I can do whatever I like in my body. I can behave any way sexually and have impunity and still be in right standing before God. They also liked uh, a religious uh, pluralism. Yeah, uh, We're all in this together. We're all worshipping the one God. These days we call it the interfaith movement. Got no idea the amount of times people have asked me to join the interfaith movement. 
Uh, the scripture says, what does the devil and God have in common? <laughs> what does light and darkness? What does uh, heaven and hell? People are going in different directions. Everybody needs to bow the knee before the, knee before the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And sadly today, you know, church discipline. And yet we've got it in the scriptures. Whenever there needs to be discipline, we know exactly how to do it because of Matthew chapter 18. It provides these steps to bring us back into right relationships. Now, in my own family, we have conflict. You have conflict in your family? And there's a few more here than what there is in our biological family, in our spiritual family. So it's natural, isn't it, that eventually we're going to bang up against one another. You know, I think some people think that I sit in my office and try to think up different ways to upset you guys. I'm sure of it. That's not the intent at all, is it? We want to make sure that we're in unity and harmony and in love and in fellowship. You know, my job is just to empower you to be all that Christ created you to be. I don't know what seed he's planted in your heart, but part of my role and responsibility is to allow you to flourish. Just as disagreements happen in a marriage, you know, every time maybe my wife and I have a disagreement, I remember the commitment that is 100% to my wife until death us do part or Christ comes again. And we've got to remember the same commitment, don't we, that we have made to Jesus Christ. So repentance and forgiveness lovingly restores relationships. And Jesus says, I praise you for your diligence, your doctrine, your discipline, that you don't allow people to come in and be divisive. But after this wonderful praise, Jesus says, there is a problem in the church. Verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. To forsake literally means you've replaced it with something else. Yeah? You've replaced it with something else. C.S. Lewis said this, A person's spiritual health is exactly proportional to their love for God. You know, I think one of the things that any new person who comes into a church is looking for is the love factor. That's the one thing. Do they love one another? Will they love me? Will I be cared for and looked after in the life of this church? But often, you know, in the life of church, we replace love for busyness. When people come in, the first thing we're tempted to do is say, hey, listen, you know, because of our consumerism in the world, we can provide this for you and that for you, and we can do this for your kids, and we can do that for you as well. And then suddenly it's all about taking, and we've got to give. Whereas I learned a long, long time ago, God doesn't want you to do church. You ever feel like we've done church? You ever feel like when the last song, we've done church, that's it. It's not this act that we have to do. No, no, no. When we get up and leave here, we continue to be the church. We are the church wherever we go. So often God just wants us to rest in his love and be what he created us to be. You know, you can ask any relationship when there's a problem. Busyness simply means we don't have time for one another anymore. We're too busy. 
And that's what happened in Ephesus. This was a powerful church. For 30 years, they had significant impact with Christ in their community. Located along a major highway, it was an influential, it was a modern city. It had a sewage system, it had toilets. I actually uh, learnt this week that it actually had central heating in the large buildings. They, they had this, this fire that was stoked and would, would feed on in. And so it was this amazing place. And yet as the church began to make inroads into the community, they started uh, to actually uh, bring down a lot of the pagan influence that was there. Remember in our series we talked about they had this goddess Artemis, yes? Uh, the, Greek god, uh, the, the Greek god Artemis would be the Roman god Diana. And it was a worship of sexual reproduction. It was a pagan religion. Basically what they did was they prayed and they offered sacrifices to Artemis to bless their females, their flocks, their fields to be fruitful. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But in the fourth century it was an earthquake and it collapsed and it was never rebuilt simply because Christ had become the overarching influence in that community. And the church became busy out in the community that they left Christ out of what they were doing. Folks, if we lose that love, we actually extinguish the light that we're actually trying to see how we can sort of shoot ourselves in the foot. We've got to make sure that we're doing what Christ wants us to do in love. Charles Swindle says some of the, the hardest words. He says, busyness rapes relationships. It substitutes shallow frenzy for deeper friendships. It feeds the ego but starves the inner man. It fills the calendar but fractures a family. It cultivates a program that plows under priorities. Many a church boast about its active program, something for every night of the week for everyone. What a shame. With good intentions, the local assembly can create the very atmosphere it was designed to curb. What are those words we sometimes say to people? You don't love me like you used to. Seems strange, doesn't it, that a church would be so on fire for Jesus and then these problems happened. But I think Paul might have actually uh, preempted this last week when he gathered them at Miletus, uh, maybe when he was talking to the church and when he wrote uh, some years later, did he sense that they were beginning to lack that love? You know, the saddest part about it all is when you read this, you actually know that Jesus knew they didn't love him. Jesus knows your heart today. Maybe that's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. I think he wrote that simply because they didn't grasp it. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To be rooted. We know that. That's an agricultural term, isn't it? Yes? Over there. The roots have got to go down deep in order for us to get the nutrition. The roots of God's love have to go down deep into our hearts. 
to be established. That's a, a building term. Anybody in the building game, you know that you actually have to dig the foundations way, way down deep in order for the structure to stand tall so that no matter what comes at it, it will stand firm. And we as the church, we need to be deeply rooted and established in God's love so that when the storms of the world come against us, we will be able to stand firm, anchored to God's love. And it's only as we are we can grasp the size of God's love that was poured out for us on the cross. He says, join together with all the saints. That's where you discover the enormity of God's love, isn't it? You know, you look out and you go, all these different people, all different ages and stages, all different educational levels, uh, all different sort of socioeconomic, and yet God loves everybody. God loves it. He does not discriminate. He loves each and every one of you equally. And it's here in the church we discover that God loves each one of us in these four dimensions. It's so wide, it embraces the whole world. It is so long, his love, it's going to last forever and ever and ever. It is so high that it came from heaven to earth, and it is so deep. God's love is so deep. We need to remember how deep it is. Because sometimes when you feel in that pit of sin, you feel like nobody can pull you out. Jesus can just simply reach down and lift you up because of his love that will cover all sins. So if you start to go through the motions, you start to end up with a fairly dry, dusty religion, don't you? And I don't know about you, but if you've been a Christian a long, long time, it's sometimes really hard to keep the fire burning in that first love. You know, it's, it's easy to go through the motions. You come to church, you know how this is going to go. You know you're going to stand, you're going to sing. You know you're going to have communion and somebody's going to get up there and talk for way too long. You know that's going to happen. So we've got to make sure that we don't lose this vibrant relationship. You know, the three important things about love. Firstly, love is exclusive. Secondly, it's exciting. But thirdly, love is expensive, isn't it? It's exclusive. You can't have two loves. Just like you can't have two husbands, you can't have two wives, you can't have two lords. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. But love's exciting, isn't it? I was thinking this morning, I invented the mobile phone. Thumb and finger. I remember the old days when I was young, fit, handsome. I used to stand in front of the mirror. I used to practice going on a date. Am I the only one? Am I, am I, am I way out in a limb here? I used to recite it in my head, you know? Geez, I was pretty suave and debonair and had a few little jokes and everything. But, you know, when I got off the mobile phone and onto the real phone, suddenly I developed a stutter. <laughs> Finally, I could get it out. But when she said yes, <gasps> wow, that was exciting. Hey, it was exciting for her. Because suddenly it took it to the next level in the relationship, didn't it? Suddenly I'm thinking, wow, where could this go? What could God have in store for this relationship? And then if I loved it that much, I've got to put a ring on it. If you've ever done down to the jewellery store, you actually realise that when you look at those rings and you've got like 1995 in your pocket, that that ain't going to cut it, is it? 
If you're going to get the ring that is going to express the depth of your love for that person, you're going to be paying this thing off for the rest of your life. And that's exactly the cost of your love for Christ. It is a lifelong commitment. It is something that comes first in priority. It's exciting to be in relationship with Jesus Christ because you never know where he's going to take you and what he's going to ask you to do. And it's also expensive because it's going to cost you everything. But the rewards of being in that relationship is wonderful. So do you love Jesus? You know, it's... It's easy for you to say, yeah, I do. But do you love Jesus? I know you love your church. I can see you're all here today. And I know you love coming to worship. I see you applauding, you know, the Lord as you come into that space. And I know you love fellowship, but I'm not asking you that. I'm asking, do you love Jesus? My mind went back to John as he was writing this. And I wonder if he thought of his apostle mate, Peter. And you remember after the resurrection, Jesus came to the shore. And Peter had denied him three times. And Jesus asked him, do you love me? Of course you're going to say, yes. Lord, you know that I loved you. But what happened to Peter could easily happen to any of us. And I suspect what has happened to the Ephesian church is very easy to happen upon any church today. To lose that loving relationship out of well-intentioned religiosity. So finally then, Jesus offers us today the prescription for the church. Jesus said in verses uh, 5 through to 7, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember. Remember. Think back to that day when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Think back to the beginning of that relationship. Then it says repent. Repent is to turn around and then repeat the things that you did first. You know, uh, many times in a marriage... And uh, some of us have been married a long, long time. And sometimes you've got to remind yourself, what am I doing here? And you remember the covenant commitment. And we have to do that in our relationship with Christ. We have to remember the covenant commitment through the cross that we have entered into. We have to remember the tree that gave us eternal life came from God's eternal love for us. You ask any couple who have gone through some marriage difficulties, uh, you know, in a, in a crisis. To get out of a crisis, it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It takes time. Just the same as it took time for you to lose that loving feeling, it takes time to get back into that feeling as well. But you have to want to change, don't you? You know, you can go through the motions, you can come here each week and, you know, you can pretend that everything's all right. But remember, Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your heart. Eight times in Revelation, he calls, uh, sorry, eight times in Revelation 2 and uh, chapter 3, he calls the church to repent. There's two different words for repent, you understand. One is to be remorseful. Oh, I've done that. Oh, that's terrible. Ah, oh, but it doesn't stop me from doing it again. And the other one is metanoia. 
Metanoia means that I've decided to walk away from this relationship. And my heart's getting colder and colder and colder. But if I want to get that burning fire and first love back, I've got to turn around and I've got to come back into that relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, the decisions you make every single day either erode that relationship or they reinforce that relationship. So we remember, we repent, and then we repeat. Repeat what you used to do. As a pastor, I was thinking, wow, that's pretty easy, isn't it? I'll tell them today, you've got to get back to prayer. You've got to get back into the Word. You've got to get back into fellowship in the life of the church. And those things are pretty good. But I was reminded that Jesus just simply said two words about the greatest commandment. He said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Do those loving actions and you'll soon have loving feelings that follow. I mean, the amount of times I've spoken to people, and you know what they say to me? I don't feel like it. You are never going to work yourself into a loving feeling, especially if someone's hurt you, if someone's offended you, something's happened in that relationship. You are never going to work yourself into a loving feeling that's going to lead you to actions. But when you act, then those feelings of love will naturally follow. So are you listening to what God is saying to you today? And then the passage concludes with this promise. Verse 7. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Of course, the tree of life takes us all the way back to Genesis and in Genesis chapter 3, we know that there are two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we know that the devil deceived Adam and Eve and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that sinful state, had God have left them in the garden, they would have eaten of the tree of life and we would have been eternally separated from God. So he put these big cherubim up at the front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve were expelled. And God uprooted that tree and we know in Revelation 22, he placed it in heaven. The word paradise, it speaks there of the presence of God, the Lord Jesus being with us. Whenever I hear that word paradise, I always think of that verse to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise that's the promise of course that's the whole point of the bible the tree of life demonstrates god's love for us sin separates us so he sent his son to die on another tree so that we could eat of the tree of life forever the tree of life is symbolic of relationship with Jesus Christ. So we feed upon him. And as we feed upon him in that loving fellowship and relationship, our spiritual life begins to flourish. So a paternal paradise, beyond anything we can ever think, dream or imagine, it waits those who love Jesus. Folks, I believe on the day that you see Jesus face to face, no one, no one's ever going to think to themselves, oh, I wish I would have loved Jesus more. We've got to give him everything we have right now in order to know that we can flourish in this life and life eternal. 
If we love him here, I reckon we're going to really love him when we get to heaven. So that's Jesus' first letter to us. It's forwarded on to the Bendigo Church of Christ. And today, he simply says, let's remember all we need is his love. Can you say amen? Bless your church. Thanks, worship team.